Hey folks, welcome to Office Hours with Dr. C. Uh, my name is Dr. Gabriel Cruz, and uh, today I have with uh, myself and Barry, my good friend and colleague, and uh, you know, soon to be PhD, uh, Shannon. Soon, <laughs> that's not pressure. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> Shannon. Why don't you introduce yourself to the folks at home? So, uh, as Gabe said, I'm Shanna Gilkison. I'm a PhD candidate in media and communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm also a part-time lecturer at Eastern Michigan University. And uh, for fun and profit and grades and degrees, I study fandom. For fun and profit and grades and degrees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it just occurs to me, uh, in the last episode that we recorded with you, we talked about, you know, we mentioned that you're working on a dissertation, but I find that often folks don't know what that is. So for the people at home, a dissertation is basically a short book. The, I say short, short is very relative. Um, I, do, I, I think of it more of a, as a place like hell. <laughs> fair. Entirely fair. It's not a thing, it's a location. <laughs> That is, no, that's, it's an emotional state of being. Um, the way that nirvana has sometimes been described as the uh, experience of no longer being, the way that a candle is blown out. So too is uh, a dissertation removed from all time and space and is really just a place. <laughs> Extra dimensional, if it were. Uh, so your dissertation actually focuses on uh, fandoms, particularly within, I think, Star Wars, correct? Yeah, so I'm looking at sexism in the Star Wars fandom. Right. And so in our last episode, we talked about that quite a bit. And so now I want to switch tracks and talk about the role of women in science fiction, because when we think about science fiction in particular, we often think of it as a man's game, for lack of a better term. Right. Your uh, your Frank Herbert's um, who wrote Dune or his name just went out of my mind. The one who wrote Starship Troopers. Oh, goodness. Heinlein. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or Gene Roddenberry, or George Lucas, or insert any other um, white dude with a great vision, if not always perfect execution, those kinds of folks. Um, so, which reminds me, they're making like a th the third Dune movie is coming out soon. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th there's been a couple, and for anyone who wants to, uh, to you know, get ready for the new one, if you don't feel like reading the book, because I couldn't make my way through it, and that was in middle school, but all the same. Watch the version with Sting from the 1980s. I was just going to say, like Sting and Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart was in that. Yes, he was. Oh, man. <laughs> anyway, so getting back on track. Um, let's talk about the role of science fiction uh, or women within science fiction. And who, and I know you know the answer to this, so I'm going to ask you for the folks that don't know, who invented science fiction? Why, that would be Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. Yep, she she birthed the entire science fiction genre with, with that book. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whenever people say that, well, you know, um, women in science fiction is, uh, is a social agenda or something along those lines, well, one, science fiction has always been a social agenda, uh, and two, it's often been pushed by women, right? Because the themes explored within Frankenstein were very much salient to the time and sort of the the issues going on things like medical advancements you know what right do we have to you know prolong life this issue of like uh mortality or immortality and those sort of things and also mixing you know 
uh, sort of pseudo mysticism and science along with you know the the current state of the even world. just the harnessing of electricity to do things right you know people's homes were starting to get wired at the time and one of the things that science fiction has always done very well is pick up on the cultural anxieties that are happening in the moment so you know you've got these medical advancements you've got electricity hmm, let's what let's see what happens when we put them both in the same container and shake them up oh no we create monsters you know so people you right. know just like in the 50s with you know science fiction movies be, being about you know giant radiated ants or you know things like that you know anxiety mm -hmm. is about atomic power or anxiety is about russian invasion uh leading to alien invasion uh Movies. Absolutely. Or even uh, what I think is a, a rather salient point in Frankenstein and other science fiction is the authority of men who give themselves these powers. Yes. And the morality of that authority, right? Because Victor Frankenstein is certainly by the end of the novel not a very sympathetic character, um, at least in my remembrance of it. I haven't read it in years, but, it, you know, that's as much as it rings true. But um, other this recurring theme of like, almost always men who have access to these uh, pieces of technology who then do terrible, terrible things with them. And it's almost like they're trying to make a point about, you know, the governance of the time. Uh, one of my favorite examples is, uh, I always mess up her name. I believe it is uh, Charlotte Perkins Gil Gilman, I want to say. Uh, but she wrote Herland. She also wrote uh, the Yellow Wallpaper, which is a short story yes. that most uh, you know a lot of folks have to read in uh, in like community college or something along those lines, or in like freshman lit, something like that, right? But she was a suffragist early, you know, twentieth century, very much you know in favor of women's rights, that kind of thing. And she wrote a story called Herland, which was a science fiction story about a community of women uh, where all the men went off to war, and. Uh, and they, the women were left behind in this valley, and then there was like some sort of like rock slide or avalanche, or whatever. It sealed off this uh, community of women from the rest of society. All the men died or were not able to get back, and so these women learned, for lack of a better term, how to reproduce asexually, uh, effectively replacing men. And so they had this almost utopic uh, uh, civilization created. Uh, until three dudes show up. Mm -hmm. And the story is about those three men trying to relate to women. Uh, and each one represents a various archetype of masculinity at the time, that kind of thing. But basically this idea of like, no, no, we can do just fine. <laughs> <laughs> we did fine before, we'll do fine after, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but that's, that's you know, just one um, one example of, of you know, a, a myriad of examples of uh, women writers who, you know, shaped uh, you know, science fiction as we understand it. So w when you think about the legacy of women on science fiction, what immediately comes to mind for you? Well, for me as a fandom scholar, I think of um, women fans and, you know, my interest has always been more along TV and film. So I also think of some influential women in terms of, you know, I don't know, um, sometimes uh, executives, sometimes characters, uh, that kind of thing. Um, for example, if we think about Star Trek in the 1960s, um, the last time I was on the show, we talked a little bit about B. Jo Trimble, who, with her husband, uh, started the Save Star Trek letter writing campaign to like save the show from cancellation. Uh, so for me, as a Star Trek fan, learning about her, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, uh, that to me was aspirational because I thought, wow, Trekkies get stuff 
done, you know? So, and, and, you know, yeah, it was just a TV show, but she loved the TV show and she did something about it. And so to me, it was this, uh, you can fight city hall kind of story. Uh, right. Also, uh, in terms of Star Trek, uh, you know, what uh, one of the writers of many fan favorite episodes, Dorothy Fontana, uh, wrote under DC Fontana because you know that's what women did. Uh, they had to androgenize their names because a lot of times you know women weren't taken seriously, especially if they wrote for certain genres. Uh, so you know Dorothy Fontana is somebody that I think of is as very very influential within uh, television science fiction. Sure. Isn't that precisely why, at least as what I remember hearing, is, is why J.K. Rowling has that as her um, pen name, right? That she was told to use J.K. instead of her full first name in order to make her name a little bit less, um, less feminine and, and more appealing to a general audience. I, I would not be surprised. I'm not so deep into Harry Potter fandom, but I would not be surprised if uh, somebody had said something to her about that at, at some point, or, or if maybe like just, uh, you know, I, I think that she's kind of of a similar age to me, maybe a couple of years younger, but she certainly would have grown up in a world where that was commonplace to just do and, you know, may have, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if she had just thought on her own to do that for those reasons. Hmm. I think I've heard something similar, and I don't know to what extent it might be um, hearsay or rumor or apocryphal or whatever, but I, I do believe that might be the case, that she uh, adjusted it for the sake of being taken more seriously. And actually, one of my um, old guilty pleasures was Warehouse 13 on mm -hmm. the Sci-Fi Channel yeah. uh, from a few years ago, and they addressed this a little bit with H.G. Wells, uh, where H.G. Wells was actually a woman, and she used the pen name, I think it was her brother's name, actually, uh, who was the real-life H.G. Wells, or the in the show, her brother was a sort of like playboy, you know, millionaire, that kind of thing. And so she's like, well, no one's going to take me seriously. So I'll use his name as my pen name for when I write these things. So people will take me seriously. But yeah, so that's and that's a recurring theme, right? Uh, women having to modify their perception uh, or b the way in which they are perceived in some way to be taken, you know, uh, in, a, in a professional manner. So yeah, there's but there's a lot there. The other thing that comes to mind though with Star Trek in the 1960s is Nichelle Nichols. Absolutely, right? yeah, and you know that that that's a beautiful story too because you know she was ready to quit and you know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told her no, you can't quit. <laughs> like you know, do you know what 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 you being on the show means to us? And you know she mm -hmm. she was definitely a Uhura was definitely a pioneering character. Um, you know, she she was a bridge crew member. She was a professional. I remember as a little girl watching Star Trek in syndication. There, yeah, you know, there's an episode where Uhura is in coveralls under her console fixing things, you know, and telling men to hand her instruments. And you know, it's a six year old me. That was huge. Yeah. yeah. And so for those not familiar, Nichelle Nichols is a um, African-American actress who played, you know, Lieutenant Uhura. And the story that you just mentioned about Dr. King reaching out to her, of course, being about, you know, the role of black women on TV, because you don't see black women anywhere else in a, in a comparable position. When you do see them, it's usually in a very denigrated way. But that also gets to this larger idea of science fiction being about imagining the future, because uh, Star Trek was decidedly set in the future. And... Uh, Gene Roddenberry was 
absolutely going for a very inclusive, a very diverse perspective, right? And so when you hear people now complain about, oh, politics in, you know, pop culture or sci-fi or whatever, or the SJW agenda in Star Trek or Star Wars or, or what have you, it's like, well, it was conceptualized as a utopic version <laughs> of our own reality that on the on the on the original Enterprise, you had uh, you had a Russian, right? A uh, Japanese American, a African American woman. Uh, you had at least was Spock the only alien on the bridge? Yes. Okay, so you had a extraterrestrial, uh, as well as uh, Scotty, right? So uh, a Scottish man, and so that was absolutely intentional, right? Uh, and that conceptualization of the future often includes when done well, includes women in these sort of prominent positions. We see it now with Star Trek Discovery, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it's kind of um, a, a couple of things that I lament about the first Star Trek pilot that did not get sold. You know, it's like, yay, they commissioned a second pilot, made the changes that the network wanted to see, and it's all good. But there were some wonderful things about the first pilot that didn't carry over to the rest of the series. And... The first one is that the women wore the same uniforms as the men, you know. So mm -hmm. when, when you think of um, a more egalitarian um, and, and equal uh, situation, you know, and then you look at three years of Star Trek where the women are in miniskirts and go-go boots, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have to think that was the network who wanted that one because uh, Gene's original right. version had everybody wearing the same thing. His uh, second in command, number one, was a woman, which we will see on, you know, the Pike series uh, when it comes out. Um mm -hmm. You know, and, and that was one of the big pushbacks he got. Oh, well, who does she think she is? No, you can't have a woman second in command. So Gene says, okay, well, you hated the alien too. It's going to be the woman or the alien. So I guess we're going to have the alien. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when misogyny is run so deep that we have to substitute a fictional race instead of a woman. Right. For this but, but, you know, still, it was just kind of one of these things like, you know, well, I, I'm not going to, you know, pick Scotty because it'll make you feel mm -hmm. all better. You know, I'm gonna pick the other mm -hmm. thing that's gonna mm -hmm. tick you off. <laughs> uh, Gene Roddenberry knew what he was about. Yeah. <laughs> What's also important to, I think, bear in mind, oh, actually, one thing that just came to mind was the fact that, you know, uh, mini skirts and go-go boots are not exactly uh, away team appropriate. That's not right. like field attire, right? <laughs> like, you're, you're sort of confined in that capacity. Um, but so when you look at, you know, other iterations or other, we'll say, legacy franchises like Star Wars, mm -hmm. for example. And we discussed in the last one, you know, uh, Princess Leia, uh, now General Leia, um, or Jedi Knight Leia, however we choose to refer to her, um, is, you know, a, a very influential and, and uh, resonant character for a lot of people. And then, you know, we had, of course, Rey as the uh, star or the, I won't say star because there were a few stars in those films, but as the primary protagonist of the sequel trilogy. And so how we conceptualize women within these spaces, I think is very telling of the society that, you know, creates them, right? So for example, there's a large gap between Ray, uh, who is a, um, a established, canonically accomplished uh, mechanic and salvager and survivor, and by the end of the series, uh, a Jedi, versus how we often conceptualize women in things like, what immediately comes to mind is uh, Ex Machina. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're, I don't know, have you seen that? Um, it's been a minute, but yes. Right, but this idea of women as 
being in science fiction in a subordinate role, yeah. in a subordinate position. And this idea, because we do this often with machines, when we anthropomorphize them uh, to make them relatable, we make them women for a variety of reasons. Um, Although I do think that that's one thing that, uh, in particular, the the Alien series got right, and that is don't trust the android, Sorry. especially when they're dudes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Whether it's Michael Fassbender or uh, was it Bishop in the original Alien? Bishop, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't 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 trust the android. <laughs> um, but we use them often. Uh, we often use uh, or represent androids as women in a way to like sort of soften them a little bit and make them more. Um, agreeable to their human counterparts, that sort of thing. And it also does this for the audience as well, right? Oh, I can relate more to this machine because it's not as threatening, it's not as dangerous, right? Well, and the other thing too is that if we think about it, you know, women uh, still have uh, less um, social, political, economic power compared to men, right? Like we're still mm -hmm. uh, fighting for equality. The fight isn't over. So, you know, it just, it, to me, when I see the androids as women, I think that that also makes a statement about where women still are in our society. Sure, sure. One of my other favorite examples is, and I'm not sure to what extent you might be familiar, but like the Halo series, which has been around for you know more than a decade at this point. Um, and Cortana, who is an AI who assists the, the Master Chief, Master Chief being the gun-toting Marine space soldier who is the uh, protagonist for these uh, games. And then Cortana is his, um, his uh, counterpart and then over the course of the series you see her shift from in the beginning from calling the shots directing the chief telling him what to do where to go being his intelligence and also being a conspirator and colleague of a sort to over the course of the series becoming a damsel in distress uh, a character who has to be rescued from a character who has to be rescued from an alien who metaphorically and because she doesn't have a body but also somewhat virtually like sexually violates her. Like that's a thing that I feel like folks don't often discuss is this trope of women within science fiction um, being particularly victimized in these sort of damsel in distress type situations. Um, because of course they are. But we also saw some degree of that in the original Star Trek as well, right? It wasn't without its sins in terms of how Captain Kirk related to women. Yeah, you know, but there's other people who say that, uh, you know, Kirk wasn't nearly as bad as his reputation makes him out to be. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know if I sat here and did a... a, a uh, qualitative content analysis, we might get a definitive answer to that. Um, but, you know, I mean, yeah, he romanced a bunch of women, uh, whether there's a trail of baby Kirks littered behind him. Uh, we only know of one, David Marcus. Um, but other than that, um, you know, they, they kind of like turned that into a joke in, in subsequent series. You know, if you look at Star Trek Enterprise, uh, Connor Trenier's character, Trip Tucker, the engineer, uh, one of the first episodes, he goes over to an alien ship to help them out. And uh, he sticks his his hands into this box of pebbles to play a game and the woman engineer sticks her hands in there and then he ends up pregnant and uh. i mean it's, it's, it's just problematic in all kinds yeah. of ways you know um sure. so but yeah like the so they, they tried flipping the script and it just didn't really work out i guess um the way that they intended uh but yeah, yeah. you know um even like Star Trek Voyager, there was an episode, uh, speaking as I was 
you know, in our in our last segment of believe women being a problem in the fandom, there was an episode where believe women was problematic for seven of nine. Like, you know, there's this question as to whether uh, she had been assaulted and she Mm -hmm. was not treated very well over that. I am not Star Trek literate, so pardon me for the folks listening if I, as I stumble my way through this. Seven of Nine, was she in Next Generation? No, she was in Voyager, and uh, she has appeared on Picard. Okay. Uh, because the other thing that came to mind when we talk about uh, women in science fiction was Whoopi Goldberg's character. Yeah. Um, who, the little bits and pieces that I saw of uh, Next Generation were really, you know, sort of impressive. and. They led. They left an impression. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a well-rounded, at least in my experience, uh, humanized and dimensional representation of a, you know, of, of a woman and a black woman at that. And which again is still something that is because that show came out what in the nineties? What Next Generation yeah. started in nineteen eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. Okay, um, I wasn't born yet. Uh, Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Stop it. Oh, so. Pardon me if I don't remember these things correctly, as I was not yet in existence. But um, <laughs> there's no excuse I have access to Google. Uh, but you know that's still a problem. The way that um, particularly women of color, but women broadly, and, and especially women of color, are not represented in a thoughtful and dimensional way within uh, film or within science fiction. We see this trope happen quite a few times, and that is um, men reskinned as women and not in like the the Ellen Ripley kind of way because that character was originally a man and then they cast um oh man my Sigourney Weaver like, Sigourney Weaver yes uh they re they cast Sigourney Weaver and then refitted the character in in some very uh interesting and in some ways very progressive ways but often you get this like sort of reskin mm-hmm. of masculine traits just in a woman's body and not really dimensionalizing much um, so when you think about, you know, modern iterations of science fiction that have done, you know, uh, we'll say at least passable job of representing women, what comes to mind for you? Uh, well, for sure, Star Trek Discovery. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's uh, a variety of types of women represented um, you know, it's it's not just one woman, you know, and again, you know, we talk about Uhura and how awesome she was, but aside from Nurse Chapel, like Uhura uh, suffered yeah. from, you know, exceptionality and having to be the stand-in for all women, unless it was, you know, the red shirt that was maybe going to die in the first 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, but... Um, You've got all types of women, you know, you've got a woman who's implied to be uh, somewhere on the autism spectrum. You've got um, a black woman in charge of the ship now. Uh, You have, um, you know, there's queer women. There's, you know, just all kinds of women. Uh, So I, I, I really think that show does a great job in representation. It gets, uh, panned by uh, white men who think that white men are getting the short end of the stick here. But I'm like, okay, well, you've had, you know, what, six or seven other series. I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) You've got Picard back, like he's in charge of his own show. Like, go watch that if it bothers you so much. Um, You know, and Anson Mount who's uh, coming back as a uh, captain Pike. Yeah. And, right? and I love him. He's adorable. I am so glad Anson Mount is a he, he's, we, we don't, our fandom doesn't deserve him. <laughs> Maybe you've seen this in, in some of your work in observing different fandoms. Um, 
but oftentimes what I've noticed anecdotally is a lot of the a lot of the commenters or voices out there that are saying you know they're they're taking the shows and uh, erasing white men from them are also people who in other contexts will also say you know race or identity doesn't matter and so we shouldn't pay attention to that so much like stop stop making a big deal out of uh, you know race and gender issues but then in in response to seeing diverse representation they're often also you know making a big deal out of the the gender or racial identity of of the person on screen yeah like there there's definitely been some discussion within uh, a few fandoms more than a few fandoms um just about you know people who construct themselves as you know not racist or not misogynistic or you know something of that nature but they definitely do not like their worldview challenged as far as that goes uh one of Mm -hmm. their biggest problems with star trek seems to be that they star trek used to have this tradition of you know holding a mirror up to us but the people screwing up in the episode was always like some alien race somewhere else that we got to go in fix everything and then we leave right so it's kind of yes it raises awareness but it doesn't really challenge anybody because they don't see this problem in themselves right Mm -hmm. so what star trek discovery kind of started doing that's been you know ticking a lot of people off is having these things happen within human communities and within the ship and this Mm. is ticking a lot of people off because it's making them uncomfortable and they're kind of going back to that whole utopian no no you know starfleet the federation we're supposed to have it figured out and they're not comfortable with showing the process of figuring it out yeah that reminds me of something uh that came to mind because i know precious little about the star trek uh mythos but i do know that like warp drive was invented by a particularly problematic functioning alcoholic named zephyrin Cochran. yeah correct yeah. right uh and so i when when uh former president donald trump uh announced the space force <laughs> and i texted a buddy of mine who is a diehard star trek fan and i said are you comfortable with with this president being the one who might lead us to the Federation, and he goes, he goes, Zephyrin, Zephyrin Cochran was an alcoholic and a lecher, and I don't care if this is the road it takes as long as it gets me in space. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, I joke about that, but the, the, the fact is, and, and to your point, um, uh, our progress it has to involve us grappling with ourselves right we have to recognize that we are often our own worst enemies and so when it comes to things like exploration whether it's going to our space or uh you know globalized community building things like that that you know we have to we do have to grapple with ourselves and and if we're not then we're diluting um uh, whatever vision that we we might we're deluding ourselves into thinking that we have a vision that's going to be perfect and it's not Right, it'll be just more of the same in different locations. It's like when people say we should colonize Mars. Mm. One day, <laughs> not maybe, now. Maybe, <laughs> but we need to do some housekeeping before we go tracking mud in other people's, you know, backyard. Assuming there are other people out there. Right. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, well, and 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 uh, Star Trek has has always had that that theme of, of grappling with itself. I think that maybe I wonder sometimes if Star Wars has not had that same uh, redeeming quality. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so I think that. Um you know, in some ways, it has been an allegory for things in our history. You know, if you look at the original trilogy, uh, the stormtroopers, the, the 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 space battle dog fights, like there were some definite um, World War Two echoes in there. You know, and 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 uh, the Empire definitely resembles the Nazis and things like that. But I think it was done in a way that we can sort of abstract it away because it's more this. Um, that this uh, mythology of like the hero's journey and things like that like we're, we're more interested in luke skywalker and his coming of age and his finding out you know who he really is and, and those jedi powers and things like that uh so i think it's more about luke and less about society and i think that anytime star wars tried to do that i think that they got even more pushback than you know star trek does whenever it comes up with a new iteration I think that's fair, and I think a really good example of that is maybe Rogue One, because that film, and I'm a big fan of the film, um, but that film tried very hard to tell a a complex story where uh, even the heroes weren't necessarily that, like they were redeemable, but they were also complicated in and of themselves. Right, and also, spoilers, they all die, and that is sometimes what happens with these, and so then we have to question, well, what was the, from an audience perspective, we might feel like, well, maybe the sacrifice wasn't worth it, because you know these characters that we're attached to were losing, and we can draw analogies between that and those of us who have friends and family who join the military, and the possibility of their uh, loss, death, or dismemberment, something along those lines, are, are being horribly scarred. Um, even though from a top-down perspective of a military strategy, it was what would be within the lines of an acceptable loss. Yeah. Right. And yeah, and people absolutely push back against that kind of narrative. A- absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it's it's not without notice that it's another movie with a strong female protagonist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was also really I, I love that movie, but I was also angry because that was the let's see third maybe no. We already had the uh, the sequels by that point. That was like the the fourth Latino that we had mm-hmm. in the Star Wars entirety and then they killed him yeah Um, (laughs) yeah because we had we had jimmy smiths as bail organa uh we had um uh uh poe dameron Mm -hmm. uh right uh oscar isaac as poe dameron uh then we had um diego luna as uh as cassian and of course the fourth being uh, chewbacca whom i will die on the hill that he is uh (laughs) He is some shade of Latino. I've known too many. Chew- I have an uncle Chewy. I have t- I've known too many Chewies in my day. I uh, did not count him as one of us, uh, uh, in- including showing up way too late, such as in uh, um, such as in uh, 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 the Force Awakens when they're like, "Well, oh, we lost the car." Um, anyway, for. Ten years or however long it was. Uh, anyway, neither here nor there. So going back to this idea of of women in science fiction, there's also some behind the scenes stuff that we've talked a little bit about that you brought up. Like, for example, writers for for uh, Star Trek and other places as well. Um, but one thing that comes to mind is also apparently, and I might be misquoting, but I, I think I'm right with this. Cosplay mm-hmm. was pioneered by women in many regards. 
Uh, yeah. I, I think so. Um, so I'm not much of a cosplay researcher. It has come up from time to time in my research, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, discrimination against women and, you know, even women getting assaulted. Um, but mm-hmm. I have not reached that deeply into the history of it. It's something that I always kind of saw around when I went to conventions. We didn't call it cosplay yet. When I was going to my first conventions, mm-hmm. it was just, you know, costuming and masquerade. So this is something that, to that point, this is something that I know I've read about and I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but bear with me and anyone listening, please fact check me. But I believe uh, circa the 1950s, um, which again, you know, a while before Star Trek was popular, you did have a lot of science fiction. I mean, we've always been interested in this kind of genre, at least, you know, going back to, like I said, uh, or like you said earlier, the the days of uh, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. Um, But... The idea of dressing up as characters was, you know, that, that kind of thing is sort of being deemed as juvenile and, and what have you. But, you know, there was one woman in particular whose name escapes me who uh, she may not have been the inventor of it, but she did pioneer it and she did make it popular. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of dressing up as these, these characters and embodying them, which we would point out this emotional relationship to these characters is largely coded as feminine, right? Largely regarded as um women's work or labor as it were like you mentioned earlier in fandoms in the other episode about how like playing dress up you're talking about it, yeah, yeah basically uh, <laughs> right uh because it's manly to know the stats to know the figures to know the differences between the different classes of enterprise and you know the apparently i just learned recently uh thanks to tiktok the different uh caliber of uh bolt of laser fire uh, by different um, colors, right? So like red laser fire in Star Wars is apparently very weak laser fire. I did not know, but that sort of stuff, right? Is deemed as deemed as like, you know, the, the trivia and that kind of thing. It's being more masculine. Um, but dressing up and empathizing with characters turns out. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ew, girly. <laughs> right, and now there's a multi-million, if not billion dollar industry around this thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and you cosplay has entered the the mainstream and the zeitgeist and in a way that you know would not have been imaginable you know 60 years ago and it was in large part because of women right who normalize this sort of stuff and it's also interesting because it becomes very popular to and very in vogue and has been for a long time to demonize and play down the things that women like and women enjoy um you mentioned this earlier with like uh soap operas yeah soap operas and rom-coms and you know romance novels things of that you know or you know just any quote literature for women (laughs) and and you know i'll tell you as someone who has sat uh i've sat beside my mom and watched more uh general hospital (laughs) and young and the restless and bold and the beautiful than i feel comfortable um (laughs) talking about uh, it's fascinating. And, you know, if I were the kind of person who had the time on my hands, because I don't have time to watch the shows that I want to watch now, uh, I probably would because there's so much going on in those spaces <laughs> that are often maligned as, oh, well, that's what that's what uh, housewives watch, as though, um, one, that, housewife, that housewives work is not legitimate, and two, that their recreation is somehow less than, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the funny thing, too, like when you say, oh, well, that's for housewives. You know, one of the things that um, I learned from the A.C. Nielsen company uh, through the course of my research for my dissertation is that, you know, a household uh, budget and spending is more likely to be controlled by women. So, you know, to to kind of blow off our entertainment and advertising um, geared to us, 
you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, you would do well to not forget women in your marketing and even in your textual creation, because, you know, in, in terms of Star Wars, like we're the ones mm -hmm. that's going to be deciding, okay, well, you know, are we buying, you know, I don't even know if kids take lunch boxes anymore, but like, you know, the Star Wars lunch box versus, you know, the, the, no. the other lunch box that's over there, you know, we're the ones that, you know, would be in the end deciding if our household budget is going to get spent on Star Wars stuff. Yeah. So, you know, maybe don't take so many shots at the things that we like because we want to spend money on this stuff too. You know? Absolutely. And this, and again, because we keep circling back to this other conversation, but it is, it is relevant here. This idea of trying to gatekeep fandoms mm -hmm. and who gets to be a part and that kind of stuff as though women don't have a lot of purchasing power and that, Hey, by the way, if, more people, including women, buy more of the stuff. We get more. <laughs> well, you know, you, you've mentioned that we keep circling back, but we keep circling back because it's all connected. These things are not happening in isolation sure. from each other. No, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, and Barry's giving me the wrap-up signal, so we'll go ahead and, uh, and start to conclude. But just before we leave, um, where should people uh, look for good, like, good science fiction stuff in terms of like representation of women and things like that. You mentioned Star Trek Discovery. Are there any others that immediately come to mind? Wow. Um, what the, the one that is on Amazon. Um, Are you referring to the expanse? Yes. <laughs> right. I love that show so much, but I could not come up with the word expanse. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, I feel that it, the expanse has um, really, uh, well, just well-developed characters all together. And, and uh, I, I, I love the women on that show. Bobby is my favorite. She's awesome. Uh, so if you watch for any reason, at least watch for Bobby because she's cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I would say the expanse and... Um, I don't know. It's not it's not science fiction, but it's dystopian nightmare. Um, watch The Handmaid's Tale because sure. uh, we're about to tip off that cliff. I keep hearing and the reason I haven't watched it is because I keep hearing just how prescient that show is. Um, and I my fiction <laughs> yeah. is so depressing enough. I don't know if I need one more, um, but sure. You know, it, it, it's depressing, but it's important. So what I do is uh, whenever the new episodes drop on Wednesdays, I make sure that like I have, you know, um, I, I, I'm watching Kim's Convenience. So I watch a couple of episodes of Kim's Convenience That's good. Uh, after that, uh, these recent weeks, but just find something light uh, like that. So you don't have bad dreams after it's over. That's good. You got to pat it. All right, then. So we'll go ahead and conclude. Um, so Shanna, where can folks find you if you want to be found? Um, <laughs> after this interview, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking of Twitter, um, at Shanna Gilkison. It's just my full name. Um, I talk about fandom. I also act like a fan there. Um, you know, things academic, things research, and the occasional cat. I think that's a healthy mix uh, of stuff. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and uh, you can find me on TikTok at uh, Dr. Dot underscore C, as well as on Instagram and Twitter at G.A. Cruz, Ph.D. Um, Barry. And as usual, you can find me at thornbergmedia.com. We're, we're trying to get successful here, Barry. You have to be more enthusiastic. Oh, and if you really want to engage with me, come over to my website and you can talk with me in uh, the, uh, using the contact form on my website, thornbergmedia.com. 
How was that? If you want to be successful, you need to offer them a cat. <laughs> like an actual cat or a photo of a cat? Free kittens for anyone who... I mean, you could, you, you could start with the photos of the cats and then upgrade to actual cats as you go. You know, as you become more successful. This week's episode brought to you by Mail Order Kittens. Uh, <laughs> this week is Calico. <laughs> Have you been searching for that one true tabby in your life? Uh, anyway, so those are the only cat things I know. Uh, yeah, we've exhausted them. Uh, well, all right then. Uh, next week, mail order puppies. <laughs> this is this is horrifying. All right, we're ending now. Thanks for dropping by my office hours, folks. I hope to see you next week. Although after this episode, not one hundred percent sure. So, bye. <laughs>